Alright, alright, alright. Welcome to the Lava Wild Podcast. I'm your host, James Sterling Cooper. Thanks for tuning in. This is uh, episode 9, part 4, Family of Light Band Tethered. If this is your first time listening, I'm going to recommend going back to part 1 and just start from there. Uh, also, uh, go back and listen to all the other episodes too, uh, if you'd like, and if you could be so kind, rate and review the show as well. It helps spread the word about my new podcast. So, this will be the final chapter to this four-part series about Family of Light, and it is about the final album I had a huge part in creating before I parted ways with them. The album was named Tethered. Uh, I didn't have a part in naming the album. I quit the band basically right after we finished recording everything, and I left in a fit of anger before it was released. So I missed out on a lot of details finalizing the album, like naming it and picking the cover art. I wish I stuck it out till it was finished and then bailed out, but at the time I felt like I was stuck in between a rock and a hard place and I needed out really badly. Uh, I'll get into why I left later. So this album was engineered and mixed by Christian Philippi. Uh, He also goes by Chris. Uh, he's a musician friend that was in a buddy band of ours called Hello Penelope. We played a lot of local gigs with them, and we are pretty tight with those guys, even though the uh, music styles of our groups are completely different. I'm not sure uh, who mastered it. I quit, like I said, so yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, Chris might have mastered it. It was recorded in a handful of locations, It started by recording the song Excuse Me Mr. Emperor as a single and we recorded it on the second story level of Harvard Street Music in Hemet, California. This was not long after they moved into that location uh, they're at now and it was before they renovated that upstairs area. They put a stage in and used that spot for live shows now. I haven't uh, been there since they renovated it, so I'm not sure what it's like now. Uh, Julio is the manager there, and they got an awesome staff, and they are all homies. I always love popping in there and saying what's up. If you go there uh, now, uh, tell them Coop says what's up. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, uh, another part of the songs was uh, recorded in... Riverside, California at a friend's parents shop where they would build off-road sand rails that they would take out to Glamis to compete or just ride them. We recorded in the upstairs office area. They also had a cool living room type of area where we tracked the drums and other things. I think they got tired of us using that space and partying in it and we had to move on from that location 
We got some pretty sweet rooftop photos on top of that building, and not to mention a good amount of songs done there too. So I'm grateful they let us use that space while we could. And we finished the rest of the songs at Raul and his uh, wife's house, where I was living at the time. Raul is the sax and flute player in the band, if you weren't sure who that was. Um, We recorded basically everything in the living room, uh, bathroom, and staircase of that house. I'll try to recall where each song was recorded once we get to breaking down each song. These recording sessions were pretty fun, but I'd be lying to say if they were not grueling at times, especially at the end. Uh, Chris is a perfectionist, and that can be a good thing, but you can easily cross a line into obsessing over little things that don't matter much very easily. So, if you are not familiar with recording music, let me break it down for you really quick. Uh, You start by having the songs written. You go into the studio to record them. The person that is recording the music and placing microphones is the engineer. Once the music is all recorded, it goes into the mixing stage. Mixing is basically getting all the levels correct. Uh, like making sure one instrument isn't louder than another. Once it's all mixed to your liking, you get it mastered by someone to do the final equalization of the recording. It boosts the overall sound of the song, and it's like putting a clear coat of paint on a car or something. Uh, It just makes it pop. So... So most of this album was recorded in between 2017 and 2018, if I remember correctly. A lot had happened since the release of Problems With Myself EP. Clayton Detweiler became our new drummer, and we added a friend from a band called Family of Doom, ironically. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we gigged with them a few times, and his name was Vic Steve Ballesteros. He became our official keyboard player, so we became a six-piece band. So when Keith quit as our drummer, we scrambled around to figure out uh, who should be our next drummer. We had a friend named Andy uh, fill in for us temporarily, and he even played a gig with us. It was uh, pretty rough, but he pulled it off. After that, we had two people on our radar. One was Sonny Ruiz, the guy that filmed the Problems With Myself music video, and he happened to be the drummer for Family of Doom, too. And then we also got contacted by Clayton, too. I think Clay hit up our social media or something, if I remember right. He heard we were looking for a drummer, and he contacted us. None of us knew who he was, and he came out of nowhere. I remember I had asked him to send me a video of him playing so I could see how he sounded, and I remembered it was like kind of difficult to get him to do that, which I thought was odd, but he eventually sent something. I could tell he was pretty good, uh, so we agreed to try him out. We tried out him and Sonny around the same time, and we liked both of them. I could tell Clay had an edge on Sonny, though. Uh, He had a bit more style to his playing, and I could tell he was faster at picking things up 
which gave him uh, his nickname that I dubbed him, uh, which was Quick Hands Clay. We kind of struggled at first uh, with who to go with, and we even all agreed to use them both. <laughs> so there was a moment there where we had two drummers. We even played a gig live once with both drummers at a local dive bar in Hemet. I remember that was a crazy show because we had seven members all crammed into this tiny corner of a bar. The place was packed, and I remember their drumming wasn't in sync all the time, but it did sound pretty cool. If I remember right, Sonny eventually made the decision for us and withdrew from the band. I think he was busy with personal issues, and he didn't really have time to be in a band full-time anyways. So Clay became our new drummer. I kind of had a feeling he would end up being the guy in the end. He was really good, and I loved that I could teach him how to play parts without getting this pissed-off look like Keith would give us. <laughs> uh, I don't think Clay liked it that much either, but... He was way more tolerable of it and would be much more open to suggestion too. I remember Victor was a cool long haired dude that we would like to talk to and kick it with at shows we played together. I don't really remember the moment meeting him or who suggested uh, he should be in the band but it happened and we all just became really tight. He fit perfectly with us, and it felt right. It was meant to be. I think we met uh, at the Mission Tobacco Lounge in Riverside. It was like one of our shows that we had together with Family of Doom. Um, but yeah, let me give you guys a story of how we ended up recording with Chris. <clears throat> we originally were going to go back to All Welcome Records to record the full-length like we were planning originally. We were talking about it and we decided to have a meeting with him. We drove out to Inglewood and discussed what the plan would be. I had a bunch of notes and basically kind of loosely conducted the meeting. We gave Felipe an idea of what we were planning and how many songs would be on the record. At the end of the meeting, Felipe kind of said something that kind of ticked me off and left a bad taste in my mouth. I may have uh, read too much into it, but it played a pretty big part in deciding not to go back there to record the album. That and also we were working with some local friends that were interested in helping us to record for way cheaper. That ultimately would be the main reason we didn't go back to All Welcome Records. It was just way more affordable to work with our friends instead. I had contacted Ryan Burian, a friend from a local band called Baseball, that had their own little record label called G-Kiss. I reached out in an attempt to get them to record us, and it worked. Uh, he was all about helping us, and Chris was also going to help. At first, I was thinking Ryan would be the main one recording us, and Chris would help. At the first recording session, Ryan just made a quick appearance and just to you know make sure everything was working, and then he took off. I realized quickly that Chris was going to be the main person recording this album. 
Ryan just kind of let Chris borrow some of his recording equipment and just let us do our thing, which was totally cool of him, and I thank him for that. That was that was awesome. So let me get the name of everyone that was a part of this recording and what they did before we get into the tracks. So it was Miles Wong, the bass guitarist and rhythm guitarist on some of the songs. Omar Medina, vocalist, guitarist, and bass on some songs. Clayton Detweiler, drums. Vic Steve Ballesteros, uh, keyboard, Thunderstick, and Raul Valdivia, sax, flute, and clarinet. Myself on vocals, backing vocals, lead guitar, acoustic guitar, and sampling. It was engineered and mixed by Christian Philippi and produced by Christian Philippi, myself, and Family of Light Band. So let's get into the tracks. Song one, making a fool.
If I remember right, this song is kind of old and goes back to the times when I was a drummer. I vaguely remember playing drums on this song back in the day. I loved adding my guitar parts to this song. Uh, It's a really heavy-hitting rock song, and I could really dig into my guitar strings on the solos. Omar kicks off the song with that fuzz guitar intro, and it slams into the beginning of the song. I remember we got Raul to add those harmonized horn parts. He normally played on uh, an alto sax, and he got a tenor in between the last recording we made and this one. It took time for him to get it down and with all the different finger positions and whatnot, but he got it down pretty quickly. So we got him to layer those two horns in like a three-part harmony just like you would for vocals. I also got him to follow along with what I played on some of the lead guitar parts and showed him how to play it so he could duplicate it. We always wanted him to do more of that background rhythm type of horn playing, but he never liked doing that. He would always rather just solo, probably because he was into sax players like David uh, Sanborn, uh, guys that just lead the band with the sax and never do rhythm playing. I remember when we were thinking of trying to record at Lollipop Records, this was the song I wanted to record. We had been playing this song since I started playing guitar for the band, If I remember right, I think it was the first song that we got down together when I switched to guitar. So it took years for us to finally record it. It didn't make the cut for the Problems With Myself EP, so it finally made its debut on this record. My favorite part is when my guitar solo gets to open up at the end of the song after the break. I really get to shred with that wah and let people know that this is going to be a solid record, so hold on to your hats. I can't remember where we recorded this song. I think it was partially recorded at the shop in Riverside and then finished off at the Valdivia's house in Marietta. I definitely remember tracking a lot of my guitar stuff at that house. Most guitar stuff, especially uh, lead guitar parts come later in the recording almost at the end of the session it's like the icing on the cake we would often open with the song live it was a good way to start out the night with a heavy rocker i think people always dug the song when we played it chris added some cool distorted vocal effects on omar's voice omar always loved that little vocal break the music gave him to do that solo thing he would do to sing the title of the song he would often extend it live and try to do more vocal gymnastics stuff i'm pretty sure the lyrics are about his relationship with his girlfriend at the time 
they would often have pretty big fights and I would always think they would break up but they always got back together. I think they stayed together like seven years and didn't officially break up till after I left the band. I'm pretty sure this was a close second for the most played song I played live with the band next to Problems With Myself. It was a staple in our set for a very long time. They actually made a music video for this song too. It was released as the second music video for the album. They released a video for the next song, I Miha, uh, first, and then came out with this one later. But yeah, anyways, that's all I could think of for the moment for the song. Let's move on to track two, I Miha. The song starts with my opening intro on the 12 string guitar. I think that's how the song was first conceived too when we were writing it. I came up with that riff from just messing around on the 12 string. I was playing that guitar a lot and 
was trying to add it a lot to the songs, especially for the album. I never used a 12-string to record on any recordings previously, so this is the first song it ever appears on. I showed the guys that riff, and we built the song off of it. I remember I had a pretty big influence on how this song came out overall. A lot of the chord changes I came up with, and that bridge part as well. I told Raul to switch off with me on the opening part. I think before I would just repeat that intro and there was no flute part at all. I remember this song kind of poured out of us pretty fast too. I think Omar came up with some of those chord changes on the intro though. My intro part gets kind of buried throughout the song when it repeats. I got Raul and Vic to play the same riff I play along with me. I admit I wasn't the happiest about this decision because it buried my guitar part a lot. I didn't realize it till after I told them to play along with me, but I liked the way it sounded, so we just kept it that way. The bridge part has Vic's first keyboard solo uh, with the band when that part first kicks in, and then Raul takes over the second half of the part on the flute. I remember telling him to take turns and to share the solo and we would just support them. I always used to love playing that part live and just kicking my wall on and playing those guitar chords. People always seemed to like this song live and it would get people in a dancing mood. Ay Mija is a title in Spanish. Um, it basically means my girl or something like that. I think Mija means my life, if I remember right, and Spanish parents often call their kids Mija or Mijo. Um, the song is about a lover and proving that you are the one for her. Omar wrote all the lyrics, and I don't know exactly what he was referring to all the way through the whole song, but it's something like that. I sing the lyric on the chorus that is the title of the song, and Omar bounces off my vocal part and does a call and response type of thing. They came out with a video for this song, and it was the first video that was released for the album after I had left the band. The video features Victor's little sister, and it's about a groupie which is played by her, and she likes the band and is friends with Omar and wants to go to a Family of Light show with a friend. The friend picks her up and meets up with Omar at a coffee shop, and they talk and laugh. Uh, they show random clips of the band miming along to the song in a 
practice room in Riverside we used to practice at a lot. Anyways, let's get back on track and get to the next song. Song three, thank you for your time. All the songs you're hearing on this podcast are not the versions you hear on the final release uh, they put out. These are the last unmastered versions of the mixes I was listening to for reference before I quit the band. So you will hear things that are different from the final version. 
Uh, these versions were pretty close to being complete, so you can tell how far along we were uh, with the recording process by the time I left the group. The song starts with a sample that I made on a keyboard with some delay effects on it. Most of this song was made quickly and basically right before the studio session. Most of the song was written in studio. Uh, it kind of had a basic structure, but a lot of the details were written in studio. I think Omar had come up with that main rhythm guitar part after the intro. I suggested that sample intro and the alternating reggae guitar skanking. I laid on some odd guitar lead scale and um, with, you know, like heavy wah and delay over the top of Omar's guitar part and we were off and running with the song. I suggested adding that keyboard part that comes and goes at the beginning part. I kind of came up with it and got Victor to play it. It was around Halloween when we were recording it, and it reminded me of Michael Jackson's Thriller. Uh, when I hear it now, it was just an idea I thought of that I was just suggesting, but it stuck, and everyone agreed to keep it. I don't really think it needs that part, and it would sound fine without it, but it's all good. I do this swelling wah-wah guitar part at the first change and I layered it with a acoustic guitar and it sounds awesome to me. I love the way this song came out. We didn't know what to expect when we started writing this song but it really came out awesome. I notice a lot of songs that are kind of written during the recording process are often the best. I always like having one song that isn't written all the way and working it out in the studio. You go in with a handful of songs and you just have one that isn't finished, but you just figure it out as you go. Just as long as it doesn't take too much time, it's usually worth it. In this version of the song, I layered my vocals over Omar's during the first verse. They took it out later for the final mix and I agree with that decision. My vocal kind of clashes with Omar's and it isn't really needed. I came up with this cool guitar hook for the verses in the studio. I didn't really know what to play, but I kind of just worked it out fairly quickly and it's a cool catchy riff that's played on the three thinnest strings on the guitar. just one of those cool in-studio magic parts that just appears when you're in the zone. I play it with my electric and also an acoustic guitar as well and it really has a nice ring to it. I think most of the song was recorded at the Valdivia's house in Marietta. To me the song has a pretty Fleet Foxes feel mixed with Tame Impala and Growlers. The lyrics always seem like they were directed towards me. I remember kind of having a blowout with the guys and I was considering bailing out of the group 
and we eventually got over it and got back to doing our thing. Omar is all into the Beatles, as am I, and, you know, he always knew how John and Paul had a love-hate relationship, and they often wrote negative lyrics about each other, especially uh, when they were doing their solo projects. It's just what happens with brothers a lot. They are extremely close, and eventually you get tired of each other, and you lash out, and it happens sometimes. I think he saw us as the John and Paul of the band and tried to do the same thing. I admit I have done that with some of the lyrics of my solo stuff. It was definitely directed to him and the issues he had. I may be wrong about this song, but it always seemed like he was low-key singing about me. Um, and now it's more fitting than ever because I have left the band. Uh, that's just my view on it, though. Uh, but yeah, let's move on to the next one, track four, I'm Yours.
This song is pretty heavy and it's one of my favorites on the record and it always was awesome to play live. The song is written around my guitar line and it's pretty guitar based and it is the main focus of the song. It's kind of in the same vein as the song Villa Next Door from the Technicolor and Stereo album but my version of it is as a guitar player. I used to love playing this song live because it's, you know, it has a, a lot of fun guitar parts and I could improvise a lot on my solos. Often live, the way I would play the solos would uh, change almost every show. It would uh, rarely be the same because I would just freestyle but this song came out great on the record, and I remember having chills while recording the guitar solos on this song. It's hard to describe the feeling of not really knowing what you're going to play while recording and just trusting your instincts and, you know, just letting it rip. Uh, it It's fascinating to watch it unfold in real time. I'm watching it and literally figuring it out as I go. I'll play one note with a few bends and in a split second I'll just think of the next part I want to play and it just keeps stacking on itself until you know what you hear is the final product. I love the process of creating guitar solos. I would have to say this album is my favorite because I really hit a peak with my guitar playing. All the years of touring and practicing brought me to this moment and I felt more confident than ever on the sixth string. I used this song to synthesize my version of David Gilmour, the guitarist for Pink Floyd for those who don't know who he is, um, but you should. <laughs> He's a legend. Uh, he is one of my favorite guitarists and I specifically tried to channel his sound for this song with... Uh, a hint of Jimi Hendrix. It's a very smooth and moody song with lots of emotion. Omar would take off his guitar and let me take over while he had free range on his vocals. Chris added a cool little effect on his vocals and it mixes great with the song. I came up with the key part and taught Vic how to play it. It was just one of those random ideas I had that might spice up the song. I showed the guys what I was thinking and they all seemed to like it, so it stayed. It was uh, another one of those parts I somewhat regret adding to the song because it didn't really need it, but it does give it a little more flavor. My guitar solo uh, came out perfect on the song and I share the spotlight with Raul for the second half of the solo. It was always fun to trade off soloing with him live. Um, and yeah, and people would eat it up. Uh, we would often improvise and try to mimic what each other was playing. Vic adds some cool keys under my solo when it first kicks. Uh, at first I was kind of worried about that being there. I thought it would clash with my solo and kind of bury what I was doing. At first it was covering it up and the volume of the keys was too loud, but it was tucked into the mix eventually to where it is now and it sits perfectly under my solo and actually complements it really well. 
I never really talked to Omar what he wrote the lyrics about, so I'm left with my own interpretation of it. If I had to guess, it was something to do with submitting to someone he loves and not getting that love back. Uh, now that I think of it, it may be about his ex-wife and the whole tragedy of their relationship. It would make sense if it was about that. The song ends with one of my samples that ties into the next song, track 5, Excuse Me Mr. Emperor. So let's get into it.
So like I was saying, this was the first single we released, and it was the one that we recorded on the second story level of Harvard Street Music. I remember that level of the store was being cleaned up and was also being used as storage area for used vinyl or instruments or whatever. Uh, it was kind of grungy and had an old stale smell to it. <laughs> The main section of the upstairs was this big open room that I guess was used for old meetings for some local group back in the day called the Odd Fellows, I think, uh, and or something like that. I don't know. I, it's like the Odd Fellows Temple or something. <laughs> I don't know some cult shit or something. I don't know. It might have been like a city uh, meeting or I don't know really what that was all about. Um, it's a really old building, and I'm sure it dates back to the early 1900s, if not late 1800s. Uh, while we were recording, Chris told us the story of how my best friend Pat was helping with some sort of wiring or something in the attic of the building uh, before we had been in that upstairs area. He was walking on the wooden planks of the attic and apparently had a misstep and began to fall through the ceiling. <laughs> uh, I guess he got stuck while falling. <laughs> so his, you know, like his legs were like dangling from the top of the roof of the second story. <laughs> uh, it was hilarious thinking of that image while we were recording in that room and I would just imagine seeing that as if I was there when it happened. Uh, it was hilarious hearing about that story. I remember the room where the computer was set up. There was a portrait of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln right above the computer monitor. I can't remember now. My memory is a little fuzzy uh, with that, but I do remember it was a famous U.S. president. I always thought it was ironic because of the song we were recording, uh, Excuse Me, Mr. Emperor. Omar wrote this song about Trump, and it was meant to be a protest song about him. It was right in the middle of all the heated, controversial things he was doing, like locking Mexican children and families in cages that were illegal immigrants. Omar took it especially hard because he knows the struggles they were going through and running away from. I always hated hearing stories about how these kids are trapped in these, you know, cage-like environments, like animals separated from their families in these horrid conditions. I have never been a Trump supporter, and I always strongly disliked almost every move he made as a president. I just never understood how people could support someone like that. He is so radical in almost everything he does and says, and I couldn't believe... He was the representative of the free world. Fast forward to today, and we have those Trump supporters that stormed the Capitol building to try to stop Biden from becoming president. <laughs> it was just disgusting to see those photos and, you know, just of those morons parading Confederate flags through those halls and desecrating that building. I totally agree with what the African-American community is saying about the double standard police showed in those Trump supporters, and that if it was black people, the police would have been much more violent. 
it's sad to say, but I don't doubt that. I mean, when you watch footage, you know, they were trying their best they could and, you know, but yeah, they, it seems, it always seems like they're a lot more hostile to uh, black people. But I have to say that when people were showing the picture of how riot police were stationed at the Capitol uh, in full force during the Black Lives Matters uh, protests, and the difference it looked like when Trump supporters were there uh, was not a fair comparison. At least from my perspective, during the BLM protests, they knew they were coming to the Capitol, so they were able to prepare and station a bunch of guards. I don't think anyone knew those Trump supporters were going to storm that building when it happened. Uh, that's why it's not a fair comparison. I still can't believe that happened, though, and I can't stand ignorant Trump supporters like that. I see them all the time living in the Trump state I'm at now. <laughs> you know, Utah is. Uh, when I'm walking around my current job, I see them roaming around all day without their masks on and in their Duck Dynasty camouflage outfits, and they, uh, yeah, they make me sick. Oh, and let me say this to all those anti-maskers that say wearing a mask is infringing on your freedom and that the virus is fake. You guys all seem like giant babies. <laughs> Seriously, you act like wearing a little cloth mask is so difficult. It is literally not that bad at all. You guys are all just whining pussies that deserve to get slapped in the face. And to anyone that thinks this virus isn't real, come tell that to my dad who contracted the virus back in like May or June and is still severely affected by it. He has trouble standing and only can do so much on his feet before he feels faint and starts to lose his balance. Um, you know, it's it's been a long time since he's got it and he's still affected by it. It's ridiculous. Like... When I see people that don't take this virus seriously and I think of my dad and all the people in this country that have lost someone in their family, it makes me so sick and I wish very bad things on those people. Yes, the virus mainly only affects older people, uh, but there are plenty of stories of young people dropping dead, so please just wear a mask in public and hopefully we can move past this nightmare like other countries already have because they were able to actually listen and follow the rules of that uh, their government laid out. <laughs> People are just so obsessed with freedom here that they can't let anybody tell them anything. It's fucking ridiculous. <sighs> so I had to go off a little bit on that. <laughs> that whole Trump subject just gets me so heated. Um... All I know is I can't wait to get Biden in office and that fuck out. I'm not even that much of a Biden fan, but I would literally take almost anyone over Trump. So anyways, let's get back to the song. It starts out with Clay beating away on his kit and I'm making some sound effects with the 12 string guitar before the band kicks in. This song was always pretty fun to play live on the 12 and people seem to get into it. 
Raul plays a little harmonica on the intro that has some pretty heavy effect on it. It sounds pretty rad. I worked with Chris and we added that reverse guitar part when the second verse starts to kick off. The guitar solo is pretty fun to create. On this recording I used a six string to track that solo, but live I couldn't just swap the 12 out for a six to bust out that solo, so I got used to playing that solo on a 12 string. 12 strings don't have much give to bend the strings, so it was pretty difficult to pull off that solo, but I changed it a little uh, to make it work live. It, I think it sounds pretty tight. Um, I remember tracking a four-part harmonized vocal section on those bridge parts in a bedroom. When you hear it now, it is chock full of effects and you can't even tell it's vocals. It almost sounds like keys. Uh, listen to it again and see what I'm talking about. I would kind of sprinkle a little backing vocals throughout the song and would say the on part when Omar would say keep marching. Uh, Raul has some pretty cool sax parts on this song and we also featured a baritone sax player on this and... It's like at the end of the song. We layered the tenor and the baritone sax and came up with that ending. I can't remember the dude's name that played the baritone. I wish I could give him credit right now. Uh, he was a rad dude and we beat around the idea of adding him to the live lineup of the band but yeah that's pretty much all i got for this song uh let's move on to track six sorry this one wasn't really mixed down all that well for the version i have my guitars are pretty cranked and the levels aren't right but yeah listen to the officially released version to hear what that one sounds like uh, but yeah, without further ado, Cannonball. Yeah. 
So this song always kind of <clears throat> felt like a filler type of song. Like it could have been a B-side. It's a cool song, but it's not the heaviest hitting song on the album. I start off the song with my wah guitar part with the band backing me. I'm pretty sure I came up with that part of the song. We got Raul to play that specific syncopated flute part throughout the song. Vic has a little keyboard solo at the start of the song. Miles' uh, bass sounds fat with that low distorted growl to it, and Clay is holding down the beat. One cool thing about this song is that it's another guitar-heavy song. My guitar sticks out, and I do a lot of guitar gymnastics. The chorus part was written by Omar, if I remember right. I just learned the melody and followed along, and on the breaks of the chant, I do this hammer-on while bending my whammy bar down to get that trippy sound out of the guitar. I always imagined a cannonball being fired during this song and that sound effect I would make with the guitar is like the sound of it flying through the air. Uh, Raul goes along with the melody too and it's a pretty cool sounding chorus. I get a little guitar solo after the first chorus passes. It's a pretty mild guitar solo that passes really quickly. I remember I had uh, I had to come up with a lot of different guitar solos on this album, and I hit a wall creatively and felt like I was running out of interesting new sounds to come up with. I specifically remember trying to think of something for this part, and I was kind of burnt out creatively and just came up with whatever I could and moved on. I didn't spend much time on it, especially because of how short it is. I probably could have honed it down a little more and made it sound better, but it's not all that bad. But to me, it shows that I kind of half-assed this solo <laughs> compared to all the other solos on the album that I spent a lot more time thinking about. I remember I came up with the bridge part. Uh, it's kind of a heavy breakdown. I recall trying to make it sound like the band Fuzz a, a bit. I think Omar would get off his guitar again on this song and let me do whatever I wanted on the guitar, and he would just sing. At the end of the song, it was just like a free-for-all between Raul, Vic, and myself, just kind of all playing little solo parts on top of each other. It's a chaotic type of sound, but it's fitting for the theme of the song. This is another song I never really talked to Omar about, um, as far as the lyrics, but... If I had to gather what it's about from what he's singing, it's about comparing a chick you're hooking up with to a cannonball. You can listen to the lyrics and piece it together. The meaning isn't very deep at all, but yeah, people seem to like this song when we played it live. Uh, 
it was a fun upbeat track to play all right i'm gonna move on um let's get into the next song track seven given to love
This song was the first vocal spotlight I had on this album. We kind of made a tradition of having me do a song where I'm the lead singer at least once on every recording we have. This song was almost entirely structured by me. I had basically the verses written out before I showed it to the guys and we all came up with the rest of the song. They all added their own sound to it and it came out great. I would kind of steer the direction it should go and suggest changes throughout the song. I think the only thing 